No Regrets. Café Conversations with Madeline Smith in conversation with Bill Lawrence. Episode 3. And in this episode, Maddie takes another deep dive with me into her life, talking about the West End Theatre and habeas corpus, Alec Guinness, The Mousetrap, Donald Sinden, and on the perils and pitfalls and pleasures of being in a long-running stage play. Hello Maddie, and it's lovely to join you once again here in the cafe for another chat. Now, I'd like to ask you, what was it like that first time you went into a long run on the West End stage? Oh, I'd love to. Can I say how much I adore the theatre and how I was completely spoilt? So I'll give you the intro, how it all began. It all began while I was doing a play called, a film rather, called The Vampire Lovers, which was a Hammer film. I'm not going to go into that now, except to say that at the, at the time while I was filming it, I went to audition for um, a, a crazy man called Charles Maravitz. Now, this was my very first time auditioning for this play, uh, was my very first time on a West End stage. And although this wasn't going to be a West End play, it was like a kind of intro. This was for a play that was destined for the West End, never quite made it, never really understood why not, but it didn't. And uh, this was a play called Blue Comedy, a double bill, and to be directed by this crazy, wonderful man called Charles Maravitz, for whom I was to work again a few years later. Charles ran a theatre in London called The Open Space, but he did also uh, palm himself out, you know, as a, as a freelancer um, to direct other plays. And I think, I believe he's even still alive, bless him. Must be in his hundreds, I think, by now. Anyway, Charles was a very scary figure. But before I ever met Charles, I w went, as I say, while I was filming Vampire Lovers, I went for an audition to the Wyndham's Theatre. And the Wyndham's Theatre and the New Theatre and various others were under the Aegis or Aegis or umbrella of a fantastic theatre impresario called Donald Albury. And I have a few stories about him. He was a good guy. I have a few stories about him, which I won't divulge now. Um, okay, so there I am. And I said to Anne Rawsthorne, who was the casting director, this is terrible. I'm going to be absolutely dreadful. Except for school and Questus Theatre Amateur, I've never done any theatre at all. I think I want to go home. And she said, Madeline, don't be ridiculous. Come on, you'll be absolutely fine. So on I went and I auditioned for this double bill, blue comedy, written by Paul Abelman. And guess what? I got the part. And at the same time as I got that part, I also got a part in Pier Gint at Chichester for the fantastic Peter Coe. So, oh my goodness me, aged just 20, here I am having to decide between these two hunking, fantastic plays, Blue Comedy, which was to be done at the Ivonano Theatre Guildford, 
and Pia Gint for the Chichester Festival Theatre. What was I going to do? Well, I picked the better part. I picked blue comedy. I had the most amazing time, may I say. Maravitz was a crazy guy, crazy man, and I won't lean on this one now too heavily, except to say that during rehearsals, Paul Eddington turned to me, Paul Eddington was the leading man, turned to me and he said, these rehearsals are exactly like drama school, I'm not having any of it. <laughs> so, <laughs> and also uh, Charles wanted me to throw my bra into the, into the flies at the end of the play, because it was about uh, an orgy in 1917. <laughs> and Paul said, you are not going to jump up and down on the puff and you are not going to throw your bra into the flies. Thank you very much, Paul. Okay, end of that story. But that is how my theatrical life began. So, Bill, I will tell you and anybody that cares to listen that come 1973, and I've done quite a large variety of comedy by now and little bits and bobs of horror films, and suddenly I find myself walking up the Portobello Road in London, going to meet a lovely chap called Ronald Eyre. Now, Ronald Eyre had a fantastic reputation. This was a new play by Alan Bennett, I think the best thing I've ever seen, I've ever been in, I've ever listened to, habeas corpus, if anybody can just get a copy of it and read it, oh, the wisdom in this play. And it's funny. It was to star Alec Guinness, and I was to play his imaginary girlfriend. I mean, it, in, in it, in the play, I am the girlfriend of his sickly son, but uh, I also figure as his imaginary love. It's the story of a ancient doctor, ancient, age 59. Anyway, Alan Bennett considered that to be ancient. This ancient doctor nearing retirement, having so many regrets, and he keeps imagining me and meeting me in my pink dress on bridges by the sea or in the open air anywhere not doing anything with me but just imagining me and that was fantastic and I want to talk about the fact that I wasn't bored even for an instant it lasted a year I wanted to stay on and the lovely actress with whom I shared a dressing room said Madeline you really cannot. A year is enough. You've got the rest of your career to think about. And I thought, do I really want to think about the rest of my career? I'm so happy in this. But anyway, I didn't continue for the ensuing six months. To my enormous regret, I came out. Robert Hardy took over from Alec Guinness, and I'm sure he was fantastic. But golly, I regretted it. Alec Guinness. Alec Guinness was the master, masterful, brilliant, nobody like him. He played this part from the heart, actually. And watching him every night, as I did, I never tired of watching that man. Yes, the other actors were amazing. We had Andrew Sachs, later to become Manuel. We had the wonderful Philida Law, mother of Emma Thompson and a fantastic actress in her own right. Wonderful John Bird as Sir Percy Shorter, a very frustrated doctor. I could go on and on and on, except 
I won't go on and on and on because I want to say Patricia Hayes. I want to shout her name from a bugle. I want to sing her name. I absolutely adored Patricia Hayes. But Alec, Alec was something else. And he devised a dance of death at the very end with a, with a choreographer called Eleanor Fazan, or Fizz as we called her. Absolutely magical. And there's a spotlight on his face at the end and then it goes black. And I will never forget it. And I watched it every night. And I will say to anybody, please, if you are offered a year's contract, take it. <coughs> it is amazing. It is different every night. The audience is never the same. He was a naughty boy. And he looked out at the audience after we'd been on for a month. Ah, he said, as he peeped through the spy hole, they're all Japanese. And then he said to his stage wife, Margaret Courtney, oh, let's start bringing it in quicker. Let's, you know, let's speed it up. But he didn't really mean it. This, this, was, this was Alec's way of getting through a long run. Uh, he loved gossip, uh, of which there was plenty. And he took actors out to dinner every night. I mean, it was the most varied and wonderful year. We had music by Carl Davis, old, plangent, fairground music. All I can say is that was probably the best year of my life. intrigued by what you were saying Maddie about uh, working for a year and you never got bored every never. day every... Well, were there anyone in the cast who just you know were sort of dragging their heels didn't want to be there or was it was it just very lucky you seem to go through a, some remarkable people involved in that show were you just lucky that when when a show like that goes well everyone is on board everyone wants it to continue and I guess if, if a show goes badly it's the opposite. Everyone wants to pull, pull away. Well, Alec was very worried, and I now know that that seems to be a common theme with Sir Alec Guinness. I didn't know it at the time. He wanted to pull out when we were on tour in Oxford. He was frightened. He didn't quite know whether this was a comedy, whether it was serious, whether we were sending things up or what it was. He was worried uh, by the audiences. I mean, you know, this is a university town, and uh, I don't think they were quite ready for it. And Alec was definitely ready to throw in the towel. And I've just learned from reading an article about Sir Alec, uh, Tinker Taylor, uh, John le Carré, that apparently he wanted to pull out of that. And he wanted to put Arthur Lowe in instead, uh, which would have been fantastic. I mean, Arthur, absolutely brilliant. Um, you've heard me sing his praises. Um, however, in both cases, he stuck it out. Thank goodness. Thank the dear God. Um, so... I don't believe he ever wavered. I think he thoroughly enjoyed the long run. The only person that did used to whisper to me that he found it very difficult to discipline himself night in and night out was the young man, Christopher Good, who played my um, so-called so sickly boyfriend in it. Um, and in fact, we, we did get married in it. Um, We've been going rather steady, and it's time to go to beddy. Turn the lights down low. And that's all you're going to get of my singing. Um, so uh, 
he did used to whisper to me that he found it very, very difficult. I, I, th I think he did. I, I, occasionally it does happen. Um, however, he survived. He was never off. Was he off once? Maybe he was off once. And lovely guy called John Guest, I think, stood in for him. Anyway, I mean, inevitably, you're going to get people getting ill. And even Sir Alec was off with uh, pneumonia at one point, which was very frightening. He came back, however. You were going to tell us about another show you did. Yes. Play, tell us about the, the other Two show. more, two more. Right. Should we do the mouse trap? Should we do the mousetrap? In between is a, 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 a not very good play, but with the wonderful Donald Sindon, that's in between. I'd always wanted to be in the mousetrap. And uh, at the time my husband had died, brain tumors, not very nice. And I thought I've just got to get back in. And I think I'd done all that understudying stuff uh -huh, that we talked about. And uh, I contacted the lovely people behind the scenes at the Mousetrap and auditioned successfully and got the part. Now that wasn't all a smooth run in rehearsals because um, the director Richard Digby Day uh, only gave us two weeks, or management only gave us two weeks, and that's short for, you know, quite a long play. And uh, I used to tuck my script inside my, my wrist or whatever I was wearing. I used to tuck it in all rolled up for reference and uh, Richard Digby Day did used to get very angry with me, a little bit like a sort of, um, you know, sergeant major, shall we say, and he used to bellow at me from the stalls. But of course he came and apologised massively on the first night and said, I really don't know why I was worried, Maddie. Uh, and, uh, but I do understand it. Again, I say, you know, looking back, it must be a nightmare for any director. He's got his company of actors. He's got somebody who won't put the script down um, and uh, or at least had it hidden. Um, and, uh, you know, he was concerned. Uh, and that's totally understandable. But after two weeks rehearsal to get a West End play on is, is, is not half bad, I think. So um, that was a very happy year. Very happy year. Few dramas. My um, stage husband, a lovely actor called Paul Wimsett, bless his heart, decided to be Hamlet one night. He went bonkers, actually. And um, he'd got a thing about another actress and imagined me as her, playing Ophelia, and um, was puce in the face and raving and not being in the mousetrap at all and wouldn't leave the stage and the company manager wouldn't kick him off and it was an extraordinary night, to say the least. So finally, I left the stage, went and found one of my favorite actors, a lovely chap called Paul Imbush. And uh, meantime, my stage husband had wandered off, thank goodness, and we carried on doing the play without him. In fact, we actually invented the plot, uh, Paul, Paul Imbush and I, uh, until finally in the last scene, the company manager at last brought on the understudy. Hence how important an understudy is, yes, and how valued they should be, yes, I say emphatically. Lovely guy called Simon. Anyway, dear old Paul Wimsett, yes, he wandered off to, he walked out, doffed his cap to the stage door lady and uh, wandered off um, to Wormwood Scrubs, actually, where he was discovered, I think, probably sitting in the road 
and um, incarcerated somewhere for a month, but then came back after a month and was absolutely fine. Everything was hunky-dory. Anyway, that's a little aside. Very, very enjoyable. It's a great play. It's on again. It deserves its long run. Hugely happy in it. Again, I never tired of it. I did a stage scream, which helped me to lose my voice occasionally. I never thought to record it. All I would say is I'm not going to give away the plot. Uh, and and my my only um, <coughs> reservation now is that they don't they don't have actors for a year. I think you only do six months or ten months or something. There is no harm in doing a year. In the olden days, people used to do I think two years or even more, or you couldn't get them out. So it's it's fabulous. You've got security, got money in the bank. You've got friends, you're part of a company. Gorgeous. But you said uh, you, were, you only were given two weeks to rehearse them? Yes. It really seems a bit of a gamble by yes. the management. Yes. You've got professional actors, but why be so severe and only allow? Is that a financial thing? Probably. I don't know. I think at that time, I think Peter Saunders just had to give up, I think, a, a white carnation or something as rent. It was all very strange. It's very, very different now, I'm sure. Um, and, you know, it, it, to be absolutely brutal about this, there were not many bodies on seats. I used to look out and think, oh gosh, I can actually count the audience. There's only a few. They were not full houses. It was being kept going for sheer love and reputation at the time. Now they've given it a whole surge of publicity. And, uh, you know, I think, I think it's really up and running again. And it needed it. They never, I think it was a bit like Marks and Spencer, never used to advertise. They never advertised themselves. They never, there were no posters or anything on the sides of buses or anything. No telly appearances. It just, it, each November... You had a new cast, and that was it. It, 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 it. You can't really do that, certainly not nowadays anyway. So um, we had only the two weeks. It's absolutely true. It's not a word of a lie. And I spent most of the time, you know, panicking, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think it was financial. Uh, and, of course, in rep, um, you know, actors have only a week. They're usually performing one play and, and, um, and learning the other one in a week. So... It's not that unusual. And it's very interesting that you carried a, a copy of the script rolled up and, and up your... I've still got it. <laughs> you know, mistakes must have been made. Even Sir Alec Guinness must have made mistakes because concentration for a year is you know a phenomenally difficult thing i guess it concentration is. was a difficult thing not just for the, yes. the three hours of performance but to make sure you're doing that uh, what uh, six nights okay a week bill i'm going to interrupt you here because i'm going to forget this story and it's about concentration <laughs> while we were rehearsing habeas corpus an amazing woman called joan sanderson that you might remember from please sir off the telly she played the headmistress in that well, she played my mum in Habeas Corpus. And Ronald Eyre, the director, thought she was so fantastic with her great big monologue that she had that he said, 
Joan, I don't need to do anything with you. Go home or go to the boozer. Uh, you're fantastic, which she was absolutely amazing. And I had to sit there while she had this long monologue. I had to sit by her on stage. One night I did this. She'd go blah, 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 blah. And I went, hmm. That was all. We came off stage and she had a rather nasty, black, crude, hard handbag. And she went whack. I think on my face because it was ow. She didn't say anything and she stormed off. And that is what Bill is talking about, concentration. And that is about my lack of experience. And that's really what a lot of this talk is about. My lack of experience. The mistakes I've made, all of them, and there are many, have been because I'm not experienced enough. I don't go, ah, oh, oh, I'm not gonna do that, or I ought to meet that person, or I shouldn't say that, or whatever. Don't do that. But, you know, time after time after time, I've made these silly, silly mistakes or I've accepted a part I am not adequate for where I should have said no. And I shouldn't have done that to Joan because I could have completely thrown her. And she was absolutely right to do what she did. And she didn't take tear me apart. She didn't call me to her room. You've got to remember, I remember Phila Delore, with whom I shared a dressing room, saying to me, Maddie, you've got to remember you are the bottom rung in this production. And by gum, she was right. What was I, 22? And Joan, well, we won't say how old Joan was, but a lot more experienced than I was. So what the dickens was I doing? So I was the one who needed to concentrate and shut my face. Well, uh, Joan Sanderson was also the deaf lady in an episode of Forty Towers. Oh, she was, she was, she was, she was. Oh, you've seen her loads of times. Yes. That was uh, 1977 or something like that. And it was for a management called John Gale. And one of the actors that was in it with me, and a lovely Donald Sindon, I can't fault him, there's nothing to say except super duper, tried to make something of a dreadful play. But the 30 stone Willoughby Goddard, or Willow as we called him, was in it. And I shared a basement dressing room with Willow. There was a little partition between us for decency's sake, but I used to hear him <gasps> as he came off stage and then he used to stick his face in a fan because he was sweating so much. And I used to get his empty bottles of port and peanuts and all of that, so wonderful. Donald, who didn't quite know what to do with this, this part of this terrible accountant in this awful play called Shut Your Eyes and Think of England, on the first night, he threw all rehearsals to the wind. He had to do some kind of telephone business or answer the phone or something as this down-at-heel, impoverished accountant. And instead of which, what he did was to take the telephone apart on stage and throw it into the audience. Of course, it brought the house down. And I remember Frank Thornton saying to me, what on earth is going on? Because Frank was a very proper gentleman. And... Donald, of course, had to repeat this business every night after that. 
But what he did was to take a really dreadful farce and turn it into a work of genius. So again, there's a year. Now, however, my part was so boring in this one. We had a wonderful director and friend, really, Patrick Garland. So other, other than John Gale, who was a bit of a, bit of a pill, bit of a pillock. Um, in fact, it was his wife, Liesel, I think her name was, who said to me, I don't know why you're so concerned about your husband being in Bristol on tour or something. They all have affairs. I don't know why you get into such a state about it and want to go and see him in it. Just let him get on with it. Right. End of theatrical history. That was episode two of No Regrets with Madeline Smith.